the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is. As we head into hour two of our daily three-hour tour, um, we are celebrating, among other things today, the birthday of Abraham Lincoln. Um, Lincoln, I speak of quite a lot here for a lot of reasons, because to study Lincoln is to understand the founding, and it is also a, a, a good pathway for us to reclaim the conservative principles that uh, seem to be so disparate at this time. He was, as Clinton Rossiter once put it, the Christ martyr of America's democratic passion play, considering how he died, um, shot on Good Friday, died over um, Easter weekend. There's no one more I wanted to talk to today than since the passing of Harry Jaffa, one of our greatest living Lincoln scholars, who was also a student of Harry Jaffa's, and that's Lucas Morrell, professor of politics at Washington and Lee University, author of numerous Lincoln books, his most recent Lincoln and the American Founding. Dr. Morrell, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks for the invite. You betcha. You betcha. I do a monologue at the beginning of every show, Lucas, and probably... Oh, uh, three out of five on any given week. I'm quoting something from Abraham Lincoln. Uh, there is something about Abraham Lincoln that it's hard to grasp, but makes him so relevant to our day, every day, our politics, our country. How do you cast it? How do you pitch it? How do you say and describe why Lincoln is so important to us? Well, that's a great question, Seth. Um, I think one thing I hope that my book shows people is he was not just um, a really deep reflector and ponderer of the essential principles of the American regime, right? He was the, the, our greatest student of the American founding and our greatest teacher of the founding. Um, he was also a student of practice. Mm-hmm. And this is a guy who was really good at politics, um, ambitious, but thankfully ambitious for the right reasons and for the right causes. And so I think Lincoln... Um, if our last year, 18 months, have taught us anything, uh, it's not only that we need to reclaim uh, a, a grounded and principled understanding of American self-government, we have to reclaim uh, not just its principles, but its practices, mm-hmm. uh, and in particular, the rule of law. Um, how is it that we live according to... Um, uh, yeah, laws of our own making and uh, abiding by elections when we win and when we lose. I mean, these are all the things that Lincoln had to grapple with in his own day and his own party had to grapple with it. And I thought modeled it well in his time. And I think these are things that we can learn from him today. The degree to which we are separate from that understanding, in other words, the degree to which people could justify riots last year or lose their senses on January 6th, the degree to which that can take place, is that the degree to which we have forgotten our Lincoln? Yeah, there's no question. I mean, that is a, that's a question that answers itself. The first great speech that Lincoln gives, he gives when he's a second-term 
uh, lower house legislator in the state of Illinois, and it's a, a speech that he entitles on the perpetuation of our political institutions. He's a pretty young guy. I think he's 29 at the mm-hmm. time, or on the yep. verge of 29. Yep. And um, of all the things to talk about, he talked about the thing that probably not, you know, not many Americans were thinking about at the time, which is the thing they take for granted, mm-hmm. their very form of government, right? It's the only thing they've known throughout their lives, and therefore they, they assume, well, it's been in existence, is existing, I guess it'll always exist, unless we get taken over, right? Mm-hmm. Unless some foreign power, somehow, we either invite it or uh, provoke it uh, unwittingly, or they just flat out just think they can take over. Uh, unless that happens, we're, we've got smooth sailing, and Lincoln makes the, the thesis of that speech, hey, um, no, I don't think that the great danger is going to come from without. It's actually in a nation where people get to make their own rules um, and learn to abide by those rules. Uh, the danger is not going to come from without. It's going to come from within. And therefore, we need to, as he put it, you know, we need to preach this thing he calls political religion, reverence for the Constitution and laws. So uh, pretty good for a lower house representative, only 29 and very, very prescient in terms of what eventually happens in the country um, that actually leads to his rise to the presidency. Uh, we got a situation where people, uh, they're the original not-my-president crowd, right? The right. seceders are the guys who say, you know, heads we win, tails you lose. If, if, if Breckenridge wins, then he's president of the entire United States. If he loses, we're taking our marbles and going home. And Lincoln said, uh, wait a second, that's not american Um this is a country that won't survive unless we are uh, good winners and good losers. We, the Republican Party, were good losers in 1856. Our candidate, Fremont, lost, uh, but we thought we did fairly well for a fairly new party, and we'll lick our chops and keep trying to shape and inform public opinion and see what happens in 58 and in 60. And lo and behold, their second attempt in 1860, they win. And some Democrats couldn't take it. And they decided, no, we're going to rule ourselves down here because we don't want to be ruled by you. And Lincoln essentially says, nope, that is not the way self-government works. That is anarchy. We're talking to Lucas Morell. Professor Morell is the author of several Lincoln books, including most recently Lincoln and the American Founding. Lucas, our teacher, Dr. Harry Jaffa, who also gets quoted about three out of five monologues here. (laughs) Don't you wish the old man were alive for these days? My gosh, what he would have to say about today. Uh, Lucas, he he had a lecture on that very point you're making. I wonder if you might crystallize for us the whole principle of all men are created equal, the whole notion of government by consent of the governed. That is exactly why free elections matter and why we have to understand, appreciate, cherish the notion um, that in an election – it's the opportunity for us sometimes to win and sometimes the other guy to win. If that's gone, free government and all men are created equal is gone, right? Yeah, there's no question. Um, i got to answer here in a way that I'm not repeating myself, but uh, I think what, what uh, dear our gallant Harry of the West, Professor Jaffa, would have also argued is that self-government is not simply self-determination. right. And by that, I mean uh, he was criticizing, of course, and echoing Lincoln and criticizing the notion that whoever is in the majority gets to do what they want. That's the democratic way. Uh, that's popular sovereignty, the people ruling. And 
That was what Lincoln was battling against with Stephen Douglas's concept of popular sovereignty. What Harry Jaffa pointed out that Lincoln figured out is, well, wait, if we forget that there is something that we all share, both those in the numerical majority and numerical minority, what we are all commonly owed under our common government, regardless of who rules, is the protection of what we all possess, and that's these rights by nature, and uh, accordingly, if you're a citizen of this country, rights as American citizens to be treated equally before the law. We lose that concept. And there are signs that we are, uh, in the last few years, that we are losing this concept. We lose the concept that to be in the the majority, you have to be a good winner, and to be in the minority, you have to be a good loser. Government, without even amending the Constitution, we will have turned our government simply into the tool of uh, crude majoritarianism, is the way Harry put it. Uh, it would have simply become a despotic majority, uh, and we, 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 we can't go down uh, that route. Harry Joppa at the end of the day said, look, self-government means rule not simply by consent. It means the rule of reason, the reason why you have a constitution, the reason why you have uh, you know, a time where you deliberate and discuss before you vote is precisely because you want your reason and not your passion to tell you what to do. Um, these people with their bullhorns at these public demonstrations, that's fine and good, but that's not how you rule. And I'm not even sure that's how you inform rule. Uh, that's not how you uh, uh, equip a, a, a community of citizens to make rational decisions about um, whether we should defund the police for that matter. Do you remember the, the, that video where uh, the Wisconsin, um, what's the, the mayor of the Minneapolis, the guy named uh, Fry? Yeah. He right. has his mask on, right. he goes up, right. and this woman with the bullhorn is shouting at him and telling people, hey, he's up for election next year. Right. We, do you agree right now to defund the police? Right. And he says through his mask, it's repeated, he says, I am not in favor of abolishing They chase him the out of there on a rail, right, right, yeah, and right, he right, says right. to him, get the, insert, yeah. interesting word here, out of here, and he is lucky, and he is not a conservative, right. by the way. Right, He is lucky to get out there alive. Right. He is walking through this sea of humanity that is becoming increasingly aggressive as he walks out of there. It only took one person to trip or push or otherwise, you know, take advantage of the situation, and he could have been mobbed in a very, very bad way. We do not need to be governed by the Battle of the Bullhorn and be bullied by mobs. I'm in favor of peaceful demonstrations, but I am not in favor of demonstrations that can readily become mindless mobs. This really is what informs so much, or what we should be informed by in Lincoln's 1838 speech that you're talking about, and he does a couple of other interesting things in that speech all of which were lost last summer. Can I pick up on that with you when we come back, Lucas? i got to take a quick commercial break. Is that okay? You got it. We're talking yeah. to Professor Lucas Morell. Uh, please read his stuff. Please watch um, uh, especially his most recent Lincoln and the American Founding. It's short. It's great. It's wonderful. And we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Delighted to have with us Professor Lincoln, uh, excuse me, Professor Lucas Morell, an Abraham Lincoln scholar. His most recent book, Lincoln and the American Founding. You've probably been confused with worse, worse people, Lucas. It's uh, <laughs> we'll call you Lincoln. <laughs> nice we'll call you Lincoln. Um, in his Lyceum address, uh, Abraham Lincoln does a lot of interesting things. He's very concerned with the passing generations that knew the founding fathers and the fading frame of reference of understanding our founding um, based on personal experience, age. 
And he concludes in something you said in our previous segment, which that um, uh, passion has helped us in the past. It will do so no more. We need cold, calculating, cool reason. And then he ends with a tribute to the person whose birthday we will celebrate Monday, George Washington. In your book, you talk about, I think it's in one of the early chapters, how important mm-hmm. a figure Washington is to Lincoln. And you don't hear a lot about this anymore. So talk, say a word or two on Washington's influence on Lincoln. Yeah, you, you don't write a book about Lincoln and the American founding and ignore the, the American founder. Right. Um, Washington couldn't have done it by himself, but he was clearly an early adopter <laughs> in terms of the concept of an American nation. Mm-hmm. Uh, he mentions himself as a resident of Mount Vernon and a citizen of the United States of America. He does not say he's a citizen of the Commonwealth of Virginia, which he is. But in his will, even in death, if you will, he is communicating that our liberty and our freedom relies upon our understanding of ourselves as Americans. This thing that's bigger even than the state in which we reside. It would have been helpful if Robert E. Lee had that same right. conception uh, in 1861. And so what I do is I look in Chapter 1, in fact. I okay. start at the founding with the founder, the indispensable man, and that's George Washington. Uh, Lincoln mentions in, on his way to his first inauguration that a very um, influential book that he read as a child was, unfortunately, looked at has some stuff that's just flat out made up about Washington, right? Parson Ween's yeah. quote-unquote biography of Lincoln, of Washington, excuse me. But it does talk about the battles that Washington, of course, led um, and Washington's um, character. And so even though he might have got some of the details wrong on purpose because he was writing a book that he wanted to sell, uh, The Cherry Tree and all that sort of stuff, he was right in terms of the truth behind the myth, which was Washington as a man of sterling character. Uh, sterling bravery and courage in his his uh, conception of uh, America. It was a gleam in his eye long before uh, other um, founders um, uh, got on board, as it were. So Lincoln is is all praise for Washington. And but that said, um, when he leaves Springfield, I think a day before his birthday, February eleventh, eighteen sixty one, to take that long journey to the capital, he says that he goes. Uh, with a greater uh, responsibility than even that that rested on the shoulders of Washington. Right. So right. Uh, Lincoln is not a guy to pat himself on the back very often. Nope. And to say that, well, my job is actually in a way harder than Washington's job, mm-hmm. that's pretty audacious. But Lincoln wanted people to think about, huh, wow, we really are in a more treacherous situation in 61 than even Washington was when um, he was, um, we had the, the support of 13 states or 13 colonies in trying to establish the American Union to begin with. So to be a preserver, you would think, is not as hard as being a founder. Uh, but in Lincoln's situation and the country's situation in 61, with secession in particular, that peculiar um, uh, temptation for Americans, and it's a temptation in every generation, right? We still hear about secession today. It, that peculiar temptation was one that Washington didn't have to grapple with. And in that sense, Lincoln did have a task that was even harder than one of his great political heroes. One might say it was because he had to reteach American history, whereas George Washington and his uh, cohorts, his contemporaries, knew it. So Lincoln, from uh, even before the Dred Scott decision, 
is explaining how the founding was fundamentally purposed, among other things, funda- uh, fundamentally purposed to put slavery on the ultimate road of on the road of ultimate extinction. And he had to battle that. He had to reteach that to the generation of 1860, didn't he, Lucas? Which yes. brings us to the odd thing we face today, at least I think so. You tell me if I'm wrong, where you see the kinds of speeches from the 1619 crowd and the kind of yellings and caterwaulings from the riots of last summer. You know, when they talk about our founding as steeped in um, racism and defensive of slavery – it's an odd thing. They're siding with the reading of history of Roger Taney. They're siding with the re- reading of history of Alexander Stevens. They're siding, in my view, with the history of Jefferson Davis. There was another view of that history, oddly enough, Lincoln's. It was bigger, and it won. Uh, to me, this is one of the oddest ironies of American history. Yeah, and unfortunately, the irony simply uh, reflects the woeful ignorance right. of a you know the foundation of this country. I mean that just shows you how far, how how little we do uh, the job of teaching our own history. And I you know I was just on, on a talk earlier today um, by Zoom uh, for the Kinder Institute at, at Missouri University talking about uh, uh, Lincoln and what you know, this question came up. Well, what do you make of the 1619 and all that? And I published an editorial against it and you just Google my name and America was not founded on white supremacy. And you can see what 4,000 words will tell you about that horrible lead essay from the New York Times Magazine. But what I pointed out to them is, you know, I've worked with high school teachers for almost my entire adult career as a professor, and these teachers want to teach the facts. Right. They want the most accurate, most sophisticated, most cutting-edge scholarship. But unfortunately, that scholarship is um, almost ent- entirely devoted to uh, uh, subverting and undermining an appreciation for the challenge of founding a self-governing regime, a regime based on consent, a regime which therefore means you can't get all of what justice would demand. We aren't a nation of philosopher kings, neither are rulers nor uh, the ruled, right? And so uh, I think our teachers are ready and willing to teach uh, history accurately mm-hmm. uh, and comprehensively, and not to say that all the founders were saints or, or you know, perfectly virtuous or anything, uh, but the problem is they aren't, uh, you know, we don't fund teaching of the social uh, social studies very much, right? It's all about them. And so unless we get back to that, but also unless we get back to actually looking at primary sources and to see the debate, yes, pro and con, what actually went into producing this country, um, even if we devoted millions of dollars to the teaching of history. If it's teaching, you know, Howard Zinn's, you know, People's History of America, I don't think that that's a step forward. No, we're doomed. We're doomed. If that if that's <laughs> where it goes, which is why I encourage, you know, listeners say, what can I do? What can I do? get on the curriculum committees, run for school board? That's where it starts. Yeah. Lucas, yeah. You're, you're a treat to have on a day like today. And I thank you for your thank time. You. you are a friend and my teacher. Lucas Morell, his book, his most recent book, Lincoln and the American Founding. You want it. It's uh, easily available on Kindle. Happy Lincoln's birthday, Lucas. And thank you again. Thank you, Seth. Thanks, everyone. God bless you, sir. Tina called me, listener Tina in Star Valley called me dude, and so uh, we thought that was important. Watching the meltdown at the most inaptly and inappropriately named organization in America is um, somewhat of a delight. The Lincoln Project just 
leaders and officers are resigning left and right. Steve Schmidt, one of the nastier characters there, is resigning today. Lincoln Project uh, self-immolating over uh, years of lecturing us about the indecency of Donald Trump while one of their co-founders and leaders was um, engaged in the sexual harassment of young men for work, and they covered it up. And we're watching that as well as we are going through the impeachment trial. And there were a couple of things I wanted to do with it. Um, We had a caller earlier who was talking about – was it Ryan? He he was talking about um, the power and the ability to convince people with reason of the case for not convicting Donald Trump. And we live in a problematic age. William Paley, I quoted to him, said there's a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments and which cannot fail to keep man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. And that's what the House managers and the Democrats engaged in here. And they are not going to be budged. Contempt prior to investigation against Donald Trump and their assumptions about what took place on January 6th. Problematically is they are um, gripped by invincible ignorance. There is not a single fact you will tell the Democrats that will change their mind because ideology is so important to them over fact. That having been said, there is a good reason and a good use to uh, repeat and perpetuate the case that Donald Trump's defense attorneys made today, and it was a much stronger job, a much better job than they did on their opening day. And the reason is it will give Republicans safe harbor in their votes. It will, there, you know, there was question about the appeal to um, some Republicans to get them to vote to convict Donald Trump. The defense manager, the defense attorney's case today is all they needed and what they needed to stay um, to stay strong and to uh, maintain their position, which is what Donald Trump did, is not an impeachable offense. The impeachment managers, excuse me, the impeachment defense attorneys did four, by what I can tell, four really skillful things, um, talking about the timeline of when Donald Trump spoke and the mob violence, um, talking about the party that has supported law and order. And the party that hasn't, the um, discussion they engaged in having to do with who first started questioning the integrity of elections and, of course, the use of the word fight as political rhetoric. Now, why is the word fight and questioning of elections important? It's important Because in their bill of impeachment, in their indictment of Donald Trump, those were the examples the impeachment managers, the House Democrats, used to convict him or try to convict him of incitement, saying if you don't – quoting him saying if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore and, of course, questioning – the uh, the sanctity, questioning the legitimacy of the election in November. That's what they say right there in their uh, third full paragraph of their impeachment bill, that uh, Donald John Trump, by questioning the election and by talking about fighting, he incited 
what they call violent, deadly, destructive, and seditious acts. Oh, my gosh. Could they not find even more words than that? Violent, deadly, destructive, and seditious acts. That's what your president did. Did you know that? That's Read it. That's what they are accusing him of. So when we come back on the other side of this break, we'll get into the defense of Donald John Trump as it was articulated today. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, Open Line Friday, your show from here on out, 602-508-0960. I was watching the defense attorneys for Donald Trump today making a very great and able defense. And um, and uh, the reason I think it was so important is not because it's going to change any Democrat minds. They are gripped by invincible ignorance but because it will bolster the Republicans who are going to be making the case that Donald Trump is not guilty of, as it is written into the Articles of Impeach, Article 1, singular, of impeachment, violent, deadly, destructive, and seditious acts. Who's the party and person of law and order, and who's the party of destructive and seditious acts? Grabian put together a nice montage for us. Go ahead, To illustrate the contrast that I am speaking of, we have a video. I am your president of law and order and an ally of all peaceful protesters. The vast majority of the protesters have been peaceful. Republicans stand for law and order and we stand for justice. I just don't even know why there aren't uprisings all over the country, maybe there will be. My administration will always stand against violence, mayhem, and disorder. There needs to be unrest in the streets for as long as there's unrest in our lives. I stand with the heroes of law enforcement. will never defund our police. Together we will ensure that America is a nation of law and order. We're in high school, I'd take him behind the gym and beat the hell out of him. But I think you need to go back and, and punch him in the face. I feel like punching him. We just want law and order. Everybody wants that. I want to tell you, Lord Judge, I want to tell you, Kavanaugh, you have released the whirlwind and you will pay the price. We want law and order. We have to have law and order. Show me where it says that protests are supposed to be polite and peaceful. We believe in safe streets, secure communities, and we believe in law and order. So they're going after the guy talking about law and order while they're calling for riots in the streets and defending riots in the streets. That's portion one. Portion two that I wanted to get into was um, the one... With uh, Bill, it's the one on the use of the word fight. I thought this was so wonderful. This was uh, you got it. It's in the in, in the bill of indictment. They they say against Donald Trump that if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. Thus incited by President Trump, members of the crowd he had addressed in an attempt to, among other objectives, interfere with the joint session's solemn constitutional duty to certify the results of the election. He encouraged their unlawful breach and vandalization of the Capitol. Oh, really? Because he used the word fight, the words fight like hell. Well, let's see how that works. We have some video to play that highlights some of what I'm talking about. 
I preface this video by noting I am not showing you this video as some excuse for Mr. Trump's speech. This is not about, this is not whataboutism. I am showing you this to make the point that all political speech must be protected. I, I, I just don't even know why there aren't uprisings all over the country, and maybe there will be. There needs to be unrest in the streets for as long as there is unrest in our lives. You've got to be ready to throw a punch. You have to be ready to throw a punch. Donald Trump, I think you need to go back and, and punch him in the face. That I thought he should have punched him in the face. I feel like punching him. I'd like to take him behind the gym if I were in high school. If we were in high school, I'd take him behind the gym and beat the hell out of him. No, I wish you were in high school, I could take him behind the gym. I will go and take Trump out tonight. Take them out now. Okay. When was the last time an actor assassinated a president? They're still going to have to go out and put a bullet in Donald Trump. Show me where it says that protests are supposed to be polite and peaceful. I have thought an awful lot about blowing up the White House. Please. Get up in the face of some Congress people. People will do what they do. I want to tell you, Gorsuch, I want to tell you, Kavanaugh, you have released the whirlwind and you will pay the price. We're going to go in there, we're going to... This is just a warning to you Trumpers. Be careful. Walk lightly. And for those of you who are soldiers, make them pay. If you had to be stuck in an elevator with either President Trump, Mike Pence, or Jeff Sessions, who would it be? Does one of us have to come out alive? <laughs> on and on it goes. Now, <clears throat> one of the interesting things is there was some Kamala Harris in there, and there was some Ayanna Presley in there, and there was some Maxine Waters in there, but there were others. There were others that and one of the impeachment managers from the House is a woman representing one of the territories, a woman named Stacy Plaskett. And she happens to be an African-American woman. And she said today in her rejoinder, it was not lost on us that you used so many black women to show violent fighting words. And I wanted to retch. I wanted to absolutely wretch. So according to one of the def uh, uh, impeachment managers, Stacy Plaskett, you cannot air negative audio of someone if they happen to be a black woman. That's how they do this. This is how they play that game. It was an instantiation of racism, evidently, by using Ayanna Presley and Kamala Harris and their own words to show that what Donald Trump's rhetoric was was nothing compared to the rhetoric of Democratic officials who were Democratic elected officials who were threatening violence against Donald Trump and Donald Trump's supporters. By the way, did you notice Joe Biden twice talking about taking Donald Trump out to the back of a gym and punching him in the face? Have you ever heard President Trump say anything like that about Joe Biden or any individual? I want to I mean, if I were in high school, I would take him out and punch him in the face. Have you ever heard anything like that from Donald Trump? No, but you heard it 
from Joe Biden, and you've heard it more than once from Joe Biden. But for Donald Trump to say, fight like hell, that's impeachable, that's destructive, that's seditious, that's encouraging violence. That's what their bill of indictment says. That's what their impeachment article says because of his phrase, fight like hell. Now, I want to do the other part, which was the questioning of the election, because a big case against Donald Trump was that Democrats don't question the results of the election. Well, you just listen to what his defense attorneys did with that one today when we come right back. The other element that the Democrats have been using against Donald Trump to bootstrap his speech into a case of deadly, destructive, seditious acts, their language, was that he claimed the election results were the product of widespread fraud and that that encouraged violence. That incur- that was an in- a call to incitement. In fact, one of the impeachment managers said, you will not find Democratic elected officials doing that sort of thing. To which Donald Trump's attorney did this. An election was rigged and stolen from you. And ask yourself whether you've ever seen anyone at any level of government make the same claim about their own election. If Stacey Abrams doesn't win in Georgia, they stole it. It's clear. It's clear. And I would say that publicly, it's clear. You can run the best campaign. You can even become the nominee. And you can have the election stolen from you. He knows he's an illegitimate president. He knows. He knows that there were a bunch of different reasons why the election turned out the way it did. Votes remain to be counted. There are voices that were waiting to be heard. And I will not concede. Respect and I respect where you're coming from and I respect the, the issues that you're raising. You're not answering the question. Do you think it was... I am. No, would I not do You're not using the word legitimate. There are still legitimate concerns over the integrity of our elections and of ensuring the principle of one person, one vote. I agree with tens of millions of Americans who are very worried that when they cast the ballot on an electronic voting machine, that there is no paper trail to record that vote. But constantly shifting vote tallies in Ohio and malfunctioning electronic machines, which may not have paper receipts, have led to additional loss of confidence by the public. This is their only opportunity to have this debate while the country is listening, and it is appropriate to do so. That was House Manager... Go ahead. Go ahead. I have to try to imagine it, thanks to the distinguished senator and others. It didn't have to be this way. The Democrats promised unity... They promised to deliver the very COVID relief in the form of $2,000 stimulus checks that President Trump called for. They should have listened to their own words of the past. I leave you with the wise words. And then he ended, Cong- he ended with uh, a speech by Jerry Nadler on why impeachment is a bad idea. They did a masterful job today. They did a masterful job. And if the Democrats had any shame, if they had any shame, you know what they would do? They'd go back into caucus and they would withdraw this bill of impeachment. But as one of my favorite scholars once said, the worst form of shame is having none. And they have none. <laughs> 
We'll come back with a lot more, but it's your show here on out. Anything you want, 602-508-0960. I'd love to hear from you.